0: podcasting from chico california tucked in between some of northern california's best freshwater fisheries this is the Barbless podcast a podcast about norcal fly fishing guiding fisheries management and sustainability if you have ideas or any questions for the show, leave the guys a voice message on the Barbless Podcast Hotline, area code 530-636-2523. Also, check out http://podcast.barbless.co, where you can download past episodes and show notes. Be sure to follow them on Instagram at co and connect with them on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash co. Here's your hosts, Chad Alderson and Nick Hanna. Fish on.
1: Hey, welcome all our listeners to the Barbas Podcast. I'm Nick Hanna. I'm here with uh, Chad Alderson, and our special guest today is Michael Frost. Michael is a first vice president for uh, Restore the Delta. Michael got involved with the group after witnessing a rapid decline in the West Coast salmon fishery. Um, The Delta is um, something that we all care about as anglers, but Michael cares deeply about, and uh, he's here with us today to share some more. Um, Michael, tell us a little about yourself. Where'd you grow up? So I grew up in Redding, California.
2: Graduated from Shasta High in nineteen ninety-three. And through my childhood I was lucky enough to have a dedicated fisherman. Some would call him incorrigible. Mm-hmm. An absolute fishing madman, Dan Frost. And he took me on one of my first fishing trips to the Upper Sack. And he was fly fishing. And at the time they you know, they would allow bait. And uh, I my first cast in the the at age five in the upper sack, I caught a nice big rainbow on a worm. And uh, and then as I grew up, we went more and more. And then, you know, by age seven or eight, I was bubbling a fly. And by 10 or 11, I was throwing a fly rod. I like
1: that. Nice. One, bubble and a fly. <laughs> so
2: when I was younger, it's deadly, deadly method. So when I was younger, I said to my dad, I'm like, dad, you're, fl- I don't know why you fly fish. Like you're never catching anything. And he said, you know what, Mike, I'm untangling your line. every 15 minutes and i never make a cast so that's why and so that was really the catalyst that got me into fly fishing and that opened up pandora's box and then it was the pit river hat creek the mcleod and then there were some bass ponds around that we would throw poppers for bass and see the top water explosions, and that like blew my mind. It just the <laughs> the the violence and the the splash. Look, like someone dropped a bowling ball in the water. You know, a mm-hmm. six or eight pound bass comes up and 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 hammers your popper. And uh, I went to University of Oregon in Eugene, did a, did some fishing up there. Probably not as much as I should have at the time. I had other priorities, but <laughs> now that I'm an adult, I'm back to what's what's really important is fishing. And so I settled in uh, Silicon Valley in, in, in the Bay Area. And so and during this timeline, you know, we also spent a lot of time fishing the ocean over in Humboldt County. So we would drive Very from cool. Redding up through Weaverville down, and we'd, we'd, we'd go salmon fishing out of Trinidad. We'd keep our boat in the water there. We'd probably go 30 or 40 times a year salmon fishing oh, in wow, the ocean. Awesome. Yeah, trolling for salmon. So I was so lucky And I owe it all to a wonderful father and a supportive family that that let us do it. And, you know, eating the fresh salmon, being out there, the salt air, and then also tying into the rivers that flow in. The Mad River that comes in is right there. Mm -hmm. And the eel. And then seeing the Klamath and where the Smith and the Trinity come into the Klamath and kind of tying it all together, how important that freshwater and saltwater interaction is was really powerful for me. So, you know, I, was, I started salmon fishing at probably age five, you know, 1980, you know, and we are catching tons of fish, right? And then, it, we, you know, by the time I'm in high school into the late 80s, early 90s, all of a sudden, like, there's not as many fish. We went from two fish a day, seven days a week, to two fish a day, five days a week. By the time I was a sophomore in high school, I remember it was one fish a day, three days a week, and there weren't even any fish around it. So my dad sold the boat. And mm. he started focusing more on exotic flip travel trips. That's another story. But I was totally bummed about that. Went to college. Again, had other priorities then. Graduate. You know, trying to figure out something like, what is productive and, and good and wholesome that I can do? It was like fishing. I've always loved it. And we had those wet years at the end of the 90s. 90s, yeah. So it was the Klamath River fish that were, we were catching Humboldt. Those were dissipating. But we had those wet years of late 90s. The Sacramento fish were at, literally 20 to 30 year highs Mm -hmm. in the year 2000. So catching salmon, catching salmon, catching stripers. I mean, we would go to the Bay and catch like 20 or 30 stripers in a day. It was nothing. I mean, just like Mm -hmm. every 10, 15, 20 feet, you're bagging another one. And then all of a sudden we had a big drought. Some of the pumping restrictions were altered. So in 2004, Delta exports, water pulled out of the Delta went up. So more 9% more water went out of the delta, fish numbers went down by 90%. And it was a it was a perfect storm of a drought. Mm. And we were at that inflection point, actually went past the inflection point. We're now at 0 to 10% of salmon, smelt, steelhead. And what do they need? They need more water.
1: Glad you're getting out there. We brought we brought you in to talk about kind of a um hot topic with the the tunnels that are going to be potentially built down in the delta and um, you obviously know a lot about that and there's been some changes recently with, it, you know, was gonna out, it was going to start out as two tunnels. Now it's one, it gets very complicated and I know we, we don't have a lot of time, but, um, um, we definitely want to hear, you know, what you, what you have to say about it and just educate us. Cause I, I, myself, I don't know really anything about it. So, um,
2: yeah. So if we go back in time, if we go back hundreds of years, the entire Sacramento Valley, in the entire San Joaquin Valley would flood almost every year. Right. So cities like Chico, underwater, Corning, yeah. Sacramento, <laughs> Stockton, Manteca, all these would be varying degrees of impassable marsh. Yep. And if we fast forward to the 1850s during the gold rush, much of many of the rivers and much of the land was was altered to facilitate not only gold mining, but also cattle ranching, farming, and other things. Mm-hmm. That includes the Delta. Uh, the Anglos that came out to California, they wanted to create land that looked like the Midwest. They were, weren't were familiar with this type of land. So right. creating farms out of those fertile plo- floodplains in the Delta w- was a main driver. So what happened? Uh, levies were created. Yep. And the channels were rocked in and the middle we we built farms and you fast forward decade after decade after decade into the 20th century, what seemed like an endless supply of water started to get a little bit smaller and smaller. Mm -hmm. Um, the central Valley project was mainly Shasta Lake on the Sacramento Friant Dam on the San Joaquin. Those projects were supposed to be much bigger. What happened was that world war II started and the federal government said that's as big as Shasta Dam's ever going to get. It's over, hmm. and and the reason Shasta Dam was built was to stop those annual floods
1: every year. Right, protect to more, the people and protect yeah, protect the levees and right?
2: to build farms and cities in the valley. Pretty right. much because again, much of the valley was impassable marsh for half the year. Right, the, the rains would start in October, November, and it would just be a giant puddle, wetland, yeah. lake, river, just until it started to slow down May, June, July. Yeah. yeah,
3: you can see that like on Highway 70, if you go up like you're going to go to like like Polga, there's that vista and you park there and you can look in the valley right now. It's just, it's water, but it's all checked up and irrigated, right?
2: Yes. And so over, so again, Shasta Dam w- was stopped in the 1940s. Well, some, pe- some people, most likely, um, mostly uh, farmers, and all all throughout the state, they wanted more water. More water equals more farming equals more mm-hmm. money for them. And if we put ourselves in the early 20th century, there was only a couple of businesses, you know, and farming was pretty much it. Yeah. We had there was no semiconductors, no credit cards, <laughs> no, you know, no lasers. No, you know, it was a completely different world. And if we also look at the natural world. There was 90% more fish worldwide. There was two-thirds more ice covering the polar ice caps. There was three-quarters more trees covering the land. And the assumption was that nature could provide forever, infinitum, and no amount of pillaging could hurt that. So we build dam and hold back that water. Now that changed the entire hydrology of the Sacramento River and the Delta. Mm -hmm. Instead of having those massive flows in the winter and spring, all of a sudden... The winter and spring flows are are metered Perfect, out, and yeah. metered out, and then all of a sudden we have really high flows in the summer. That had a had an impact, and then in the '40s and '50s, some some people pushed on the federal government. Hey, we need we need to quote unquote finish the Central Valley Project, which which included damming every single river <laughs> in Humboldt and Mendocino and Del, Nor- Del Norte counties. That includes from the north to the south: Smith, the rest of the Trinity the Mad Van Dusen, the Trinity, and the Eel. Every single one of those rivers was going to be reservoirs all the way down to the ocean, and all that water is going to be pumped up over the Siskiyou's into Whiskeytown Lake, into the Sacramento River, where all that extra water was going to be pumped around the delta through the tunnels to western San Joaquin Valley, which is a semi-arid desert, which gets three to six inches of rain per year. Mm -hmm. It does have dirt and you can farm things down there, but it's really compromised soils where, you know, and then I, and again, these plans were drawn up in the 1890s. I was going
1: to say, just build it. There are no checks and balances. Let's just build it. and
2: Yeah. Right. So <laughs> in the 1890s, you know, there was no automobile, you know, there's a completely different world. And then the, these things started to be executed. So the state government, Pat Brown, Jerry Brown's father picked up the state water project. And, built a number of the reservoirs but there were some people that fought back against the state water project and said no the smith the mad van dusen the klamath the rest of the trinity and the eel those are wild and scenic rivers and they have more value wild and scenic than they do damned as reservoirs all so, the way down to the well, ocean
3: there was i i can't help but assume there was some economic incentive out that was Kind of driving the public's outrage on the on the coast because they're you know their their livelihoods probably dependent upon these rivers and they knew that there was going to be some if people come in and mess this up this fishery may be impacted was that is that a logical assumption or?
2: yes absolutely okay. and rivers are ribbons of life and that cool fresh water that runs through these areas delivers. What the land needs to produce the right amount of trees, the right amount of fog, the right amount of flora and fauna for that region, mm-hmm. and if you have these warm ro- reservoirs in those areas that that are used to cold water, you create all kinds of unintended consequences, and we're already paying the price for those. For you know Shasta Lake, Oroville, all the rest of of, of you know um, Folsom, Folsom, the rest of these reservoirs. There's a price to be paid. So Governor Ronald Reagan, of all people, came in after Pat Brown, and my father did some pro bono legal work against the um, State Water Project, and the Wild Rivers Act was passed in 1968, signed by Governor Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. He wanted some environmental credibility, and this was a a different time Mm -hmm. in America. You know, the Republican Party was a different party, the Democratic Party was a different party, and, you know, the, the... um, Endangered Species Act and a, a lot of these environmental regulations were just coming, coming into in play. In effect, yeah. You know, Silent Spring. This was the advent of the environmental movement. So, Interesting. So, so this is a long-winded way of answering what were the tunnels for? The tunnels were for delivering Humboldt-Mendocino's water to western San Joaquin Valley. And just in our mind's eye, let's close our eyes and imagine where we are. If you're coming from the Bay Area, you're going to take 152 over to Los Banos, and you're going to hit I-5, and you're going to go south. You're still on the western side of the San Joaquin River, that area, that I-5 corridor between Los Banos and the Grapevine, which is now home to almonds, pomegranates. Pistachios. Pistachios. And they also do a lot of fracking there. And so tremendous amount of fresh water is used for fracking, and that creates a whole other set of issues. So Mm. the chief beneficiaries – of the Delta Tunnels were going to be corporate agribusiness, oil and gas, and also endless development, too. Um, you know, Pumping the water up over the Tehachapi's down into the L.A. Basin comes at a massive monetary and, enviro- cost, and yeah. energy cost that wasn't realized when some of these first projects were built. And so much of that water just was used in the western San Joaquin Valley. And the way I like to say it is money doesn't grow on trees. But it does flow down the river, right? So <laughs> more water equals more money. And I said something earlier about where we were environmentally with the amount of fish, the amount of ice, the amount of trees. So as the decades go on, the amount of people in California is going up, skyrocketing. We, yeah. yeah, we now have thirty-eight million people. We've now reached the point where you know we're real—we're short on water. We we don't have endless amounts of water to do everything that "quote unquote" we want to do. And unfortunately, the state government is still living in 1890 and they want to finish the tunnels because they want big public works projects to line the pockets of engineering and construction interests. They want corporate agribusiness to get theirs. They want oil and gas to get theirs and endless development in every direction in dry parts of the state. Those are the three beneficiaries. Who pays the price? The environment pays the price. Fishermen pay the price, and everybody eventually will pay the price. You know, we've got another warm, dry year right now, and we're starting to experience problems like they've experienced in Australia, also Cape Town, South Africa.
3: Can you describe those a bit?
2: Yeah, so Australia is that absolutely perfect case study for California. They experienced what was called the Millennium Drought. It started in the late 90s and went all the way through the 2010s. Wow. It's about a 15-year drought. There's two major urban areas in Australia. There's Adelaide and Melbourne. Adelaide gets about 15 inches of rain. Melbourne gets about 25 inches of rain per year. So after a couple, you know, two or three years at, say, four to nine inches of rain per year... The the state, local, and, and federal governments in Australia got their heads together and say, "What do we do about this desal plant?" Inner basin pipeline was the answer. So, an inner basin pipeline was not unlike the Delta Tunnels. They're going to mm-hmm. take water from wet part of the continent and pump it all the way across the entire continent to the urban areas on the coast. Mm. Now, Australia is very similar to California: similar government structure, local, state, and federal. Most of the people live on the coast. They get about the same amount of rain every year. They have a wet and a dry season, very, very similar. Hmm. So let's just say in year three of a 15-year drought, and they didn't know how long the drought was going to last. They said, okay, desal plant, interbasin pipeline. Okay. And next year is going to be an average year where we're going to get you know 15 to 20 inches of rain. Okay, the next year is like six inches. Like, oh, okay, well, let's keep going. Okay, desal pipeline's coming. Okay, you know next year, eight inches of rain. Okay, desal plant. Okay, next year, four inches of rain. Okay, now we're in the middle. We're in the year six, going on year seven of this drought. They are six inches away from running out of water
1: for millions of people. And all the time they're building this desalination plant. and They haven't even finished the design. Okay. So they
2: haven't yeah. even stuck a shovel in the ground in this thing. Okay, <laughs> So the government gets back together and said, okay, we need immediate relief right now. How do we get water now? How do right. we do this thing? And for the least amount of money, because all our money is going to the pipeline and the desal plant, and we can't unwind that thing. So they said, okay, we're going to maximize local supply. We're going to subsidize rainwater capture devices. We're going to do peak demand pricing. We're going to shut down every public water fountain just to let it be known no one's wasting any water for Mm -hmm. any reason. And in a short amount of time, they solve their problem. And they had other high-level strategies like mitigating heat island effect. Heat island effect is when an urban area is hotter during the day and night than the, the comparable wild area. Right. And it can be 5 to 6 degrees hotter during the day, but up to 20 degrees hotter at night. And what does this mean? This means that a certain amount of storms with low clouds, will, will, the low clouds will come running through, but all this heat is rising up right. off the land, the clouds will either evaporate, they'll split and go around... You're gonna lose rainfall. How do they mitigate that? The, uh, more permeable surfaces, green roofs. Uh, so when 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 water hits the um, the pavement out here, like these streets right outside of us, it just runs into the gutter, goes down the drain system, and rushes out to the se- from here to Big
1: Chico Creek and into the Sacramento River. Yeah,
2: but what happens is you can have what's called permeable paving, and you can have where the water sifts down through more tree cover. Green roofs would just be putting a layer of dirt and and plants on top of a roof, hmm. using less energy. So, year six, they did the regional self sufficiency um, change their strategy, implemented these tactics immediately. It didn't cost very much at all. Okay, year seven goes by, with a little bit more water. You know, year eight goes by. They spent a little bit of money, a little bit more water. Year nine, a little bit more money, a little bit more water. Pretty soon, by, fi- by the end of the 15-year drought, they literally solved their problem, and they didn't need <laughs> the diesel plant or the interbasin pipeline. Mm. And it, the diesel plant was never even turned on because it exacerbated heat island effect really badly. It used a tremendous makes sp- sense, yeah. ton of natural gas, so it's cranking out all this heat up into the air. which They're losing rainfall from that. And they never, they never sent one drop through the pipeline because they were afraid that it was going to scorch the area of origin, right? This, this wet part of the continent where this is going to send all the water to the urban area. Like
3: Northern California.
2: Yes. Exactly. That's such a long-winded yeah, way. Yeah.
3: So if we bring it back to what's going on right now, um, where are we at in the Australian timeline? If that, does that make sense? Yeah.
2: yeah. We're, we're at year one of the 15-year drought. So if, if we go back over the last 2,000 years, look at tree rings in California, multiple droughts over 100 years, multiple droughts over 50 years, I mean, 20-year droughts were par for the course.
1: But the, ten, the big 10-year drought was 1890, right? That was the one that we're experiencing basically now, is what? Uh,
2: yeah, there's been all kinds of droughts, right? right? right. And, and really, so the gold rush started during a 20-year drought that ended in 1862, and in 1862, an atmospheric river came over northern California, and it rained for 41 days and nights in a row. Every flat part of California, the entire Sacramento Valley, the entire San Joaquin Valley, the entire Sacramento, uh, Santa Clara Valley, Silicon Valley, the entire L.A. Basin was 9 to 10 feet underwater. Wow. Leland Stanford of Stanford University was governor Whoa. at the time. He went to the state capitol in a boat went into the state capitol through a second story window, got all of this stuff out as much as he could salvage, you know, and then they moved the capital to San Francisco on of those steep, rocky hills. And San Francisco was a capital until they could rebuild Sacramento. Thousands, tens of thousands of people died. Entire towns got washed away. Oh, so what does this mean? We're going to have long droughts with intermittent, massive rain years. Mm-hmm. We, ex- in the last, you know, 24 months we've experienced it. We're going from, from really dry to a little bit of rain to a ton of rain, and now, rain. Yeah. now we're dry again. So comparing ourselves to Australia, we're at the beginning phase. Some of the powers that be, corporate ag, fracking, endless development, state government, they've got all their chips on the Delta Tunnels. And let's go back in time and look at Delta Tunnels. It was originally part of the Shasta Dam project, right? And it got shelved then. It was too too expensive, too destructive. Pat Brown tries to bring it back in the 1960s. Nope, not going to do it. Too expensive, too destructive. Jerry Brown's elected governor in the late 70s. He brings it back. Yeah, we're going to do the, it was called the Peripheral Canal. Well, the people in the Delta went crazy, rallied against it, and it was put on the ballot in 1982. It was down, voted down 2-1. to 63-37. The people mm-hmm. of California voted against it. It was resurrected as CalFED in the 1990s, couldn't get any traction. It was resurrected as the Bay Delta Conservation Plan in the the 2000s into the 2010s. That never got any traction. The Obama administration saved us from it then. And now it's been resurrected again as the California Water Fix. And the two-tunnel plan is out, and now... The state government is pushing a one-tunnel plan, which is just as destructive as a as two-tunnel plan. I like to say it like this: a highway to hell with one lane will still get you there. <laughs>
1: <laughs> <laughs> wow, wow, that's a lot of information to to soak in. I, you, great story, though. I like it. It was it brought it it brought it home for me because I can't tell you how many people think, like for one, that the tunnels is there to protect against. Uh, a massive earthquake taking place, and a, a lot of salt water coming into the delta, potentially destroying farmlands. Right?
2: Yeah, that's one of the major scare tactics that's used to sell it. So let's let's take a hard look at the earthquakes. The nearest fault is the Hayward Fault. It's forty miles away. Mm-hmm. And there's a, there's a mountain range in between the Hayward Fault and the delta. No delta levee has ever been damaged by an earthquake. So, and there was just a massive earthquake just recently and not one Delta levee was damaged. And yes, a lot of water is pumped out of the Delta. You know, Santa Clara Valley gets 40% of, of their water from the Delta and Southern California, Metropolitan Water of LA gets a massive amount of their water from the Delta as well. Those regions are important, but the lion's share of the water pumped out of the Delta is used for corporate agribusiness in the semi-arid desert mm-hmm. of Western San Joaquin Valley. Mm-hmm. Let us make no mistake about that. If we looked at a pie chart, Santa Clara Valley gets two to four percent of Delta exports. Metropolitan Water Valley gets about forty-two percent of Delta exports. With the Western San Joaquin Valley gets fifty-five percent of Delta exports. And then we hear these scare tactics, like, "Well, if we don't give all our water to corporate agribusiness in the semi-arid desert, then we're all going to starve." And California feeds the nation. Okay, let's back up a little bit. You know, we're not going to starve. Okay, when Stuart Resnick and the wonderful company buys fifty thousand acres of scrub brush for for no money, and then works his political magic to get millions of acre feet of water delivered to him, and turns it into Palm Wonderful and silk soy milk and his almond empire (laughs) Mm -hmm. you know that is public trust resource delta water and your all you listeners all your hard-earned tax dollars subsidizing this Mm -hmm. and we're also at an environmental inflection point that we don't understand the cost of salmon going extinct we don't understand the cost of delta smelt going extinct, longfin smelt, any of these native fish. Because we've, we've been here for a blink of an eye in, in, a, in, a, in a, the time, the timeline of eternity, sure. right? We've been yeah. here for the less than a blink of an eye. And during that time, we went from 6 million salmon swimming through the San Francisco Bay every year to now low hundreds of thousands is considered a good year. And we look at these giant structures we have Shasta dam, Oroville Dam of being these giant permanent things that are that are not only were were just there when we were born and didn't cost anything but also that will be there in perpetuity mm-hmm. we can we can tell by what happened at Oroville Dam last year that not only are these things not permanent, they're incredibly expensive to maintain and we need to be very, very careful in the way that we manipulate the water flows because hundred percent, the historical data is coming in. There's, there's a massive cost.
1: Yeah. It's not for, it sounds like over a couple hundred years we've been, excuse my language, fucking up our Valley, (laughs) you know, and creating all these things. And, um, yeah, I, why are we going backwards by continuing with that plan when we should be looking at other things to right protect yeah. our, protect our resources and protect the delta
2: yeah and it's 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 scare tactics that are used right well if we don't we just we just have to live with corporate agribusiness taking all the water because we're going to starve otherwise that's not the case many of the specialty crops that are grown in san Joaquin valley could be grown in other parts of the country if there were were not massive subsidized subsidies encouraging build growing them here. And yes, many people, actually not that many people, a very small amount of people have become incredibly wealthy based on on what we're doing with this water. Mm -hmm. But millions of people have paid the price for that. And we now have a choice to make. Do we continue with the massive industrial scale projects that give us nothing but problems and the need for other massive industrial scale projects or... Do we a maintain what we have? B, start looking at the value of the delta. Mm-hmm. What does the delta mean for, for me, for you, for the listener? You know, you're you're driving down down the road. What what does it mean to me? Why do I care about the delta? That's a very good question. The delta is a mixing zone. It's an estuary. It's where the salt and fresh water meet. This is where life happens, mm-hmm. and this is the most important area in the entire west coast is the san francisco bay delta estuary followed by columbia river followed by puget sound and there's also you know the la river and there's a lot of um fresh water that does flow through southern california Mm -hmm. and these are diamonds in the rough that we have just we've buried these diamonds and, and and trashed them pretty badly but the life forces are so strong that if we just understand their value work our own ways of doing things around resurrecting them the life forces will repopulate you know the longfin smelt the delta smelt salmon steelhead though they're they will come roaring back right we, i always say
1: nature if they find a way
2: just add water <laughs> <laughs> and, and 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 water is life and rivers are ribbons of life and if you I like to put things in human perspective because we can all understand ourselves, right? So imagine there was some other planet that we found, and they said, "Oh, we found this planet; it's got atmosphere. All we need to do is just take some of the air out of Earth's atmosphere, and we're gonna we're gonna pipe it to this other planet." Well, you could take a little bit of air, and you know, probably, you know things would probably go okay. Well, then you're taking a little bit more, a little bit more, pretty soon we wouldn't have any oxygen to breathe, and people would have all kinds of health consequences, you know. And then if you took yourself back. From me, say, look at these people. You know what's wrong with them? Well, there's all these stressors, right? They're not getting enough food. They're not exercising enough. They're not doing this. They're not doing that. Well, they don't even have any air to breathe, and this is how the fish feel. In every unit of water, is a unit of food. More water, more food, more fish. Fresh water is the life force that 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 powers us, and it powers the fish too. And it's not fish versus food. Fish is food. Right. So well,
1: it makes me think about, like, for example, the Smith, our last undammed river on on the coast and just how beautiful and majestic that river and fish are, right? I mean, mm-hmm. it, they are one of a kind. And then you go to the base of <laughs> Oroville Dam and you start catching some steelhead in there with missing tails and no, t- <laughs> no lips or faces on You're them. You're talking yeah. about
3: the steelhead? Yeah. Uh, okay, not the... Not just the transients. Fish. I'm just the. Fish. <laughs> <laughs> I, was like, I got confused there for a second. <laughs> so I'm picking up what you're putting
1: down. No, I, it makes sense.
2: Yeah, and you know we don't have to take down Oroville Dam. Right. We don't have to take down well, Shasta what Dam. Are,
1: what do we have to do?
2: So there are some simple things that we can do. First thing is just to recognize the value of having fresh water flowing all the way through. You know, we're we're in Chico. Imagine these drops flowing down through the Sacramento River, they're going to meet up with the San Joaquin and they're going to flow all the way out through the Golden Gate into the ocean. Mm-hmm. You know, starting in the 20th century, there is a you know what they would say is, well, that water's wasted. That water that flows out to the ocean, that right. water's wasted. Right. So the first thing we do is try to just back up a little bit <laughs> and say no, that water is not wasted. When cold water flows all the way out to the ocean, it keeps everything alive on the way. Okay, we'll start there. So water that flows the ocean isn't wasted. And let's take a hard look at how much water we've, we've promised to different people and places around the state and get an accurate understanding of, of who we've prod, promised and how much water for. And take a hard look. Another 50,000 acres of almonds in Bakersfield? I mean, is that really what we need? What are the external costs? The the come along with that, and letting more water flow through the Bay Delta, not pumping as much out. So what happens right now is that the Tracy pumping stations are in Tracy, California, mm-hmm. and they pump water out of the San Joaquin River as it enters the Delta. So in our, let's close our eyes and let's think about where we are in the state. We're going to put ourselves in the Southern Sierras down near Mammoth Mountain, and we're going to be a couple drops of water. We're going to flow down out of those mountains into the San Joaquin Valley. And all the the creeks come together at the San Joaquin River. That water flows from south to north. And the the drops that—then it hits the Merced, the Stanislaus, the the Tuolumne, the Macombie. They all pick it up right there, then it comes into the delta. Well, what happens is then they pump the water back south again. So instead of having the water flowing north and then flowing west out of the ocean, much of it does a U-turn and goes back. That that creates a real problem. The fish don't know where they're going, and then when those pumps turn on and start sucking south, they think, oh, that's where the ocean is. And then they swim down; they're stuck in the aqueduct forever.
3: Yeah, because that fresh water is kind of like a lighthouse beacon for those fish in a lot of ways that are coming out of the ocean, right?
2: Yeah, they could smell it. Yeah. Right? How does the salmon yeah. know where it's born? It was it can smell it. Yeah. And if if and all of a sudden the currents are all disrupted and messed up. It's difficult. So there's too much water being pulled out of the Tracy pumping stations, and they're pumping at the wrong time. And they're pumping to support an unsustainable agricultural industry. The soil in the western San Joaquin Valley has salt, selenium, boron, and dozens of other chemicals naturally occurring in it. That's at the surface. Then it has massive layers of clay in the soil. So what happens is you put all this delta water on that soil. It picks up all those salts and and chemicals that are naturally occurring and it pulls those into the San Joaquin River. So now the San Joaquin River as it moves towards the delta is compromised on quality.
1: Yeah.
3: And it, it it's so you you're telling you know I grew up on a rice a rice farm near here and it, what everything you're telling me it's just so counterintuitive to why you know why focus dollars on keeping the southern part of the state agriculturally viable when we've got everything up here in the north state to maybe pick up any production slack, I mean maybe naive of me to say that because I, I don't know the the internal workings of everything, but I know you know there's there's a lot of capacity up here, and there's great ground up here, and there's plenty of water,
2: yes, so and we need to understand how much water does it take to produce one almond in western San Joaquin Valley right. versus First how much up here, Yeah. yeah, right. so Chico gets about twenty seven inches of rain per year. Okay, Western San Joaquin Valley is like four inches of rain per year you know that's a you know that's a six or seven hundred percent difference, mm-hmm. so they're still pumping the Sacramento pretty significantly up here to grow all these nuts up yeah. here, yeah. and they use a a lot of water, but it takes way more down there, plus yeah. the number one user of energy in the state is the number one use of energy in the state is to pump water. <laughs>
3: Yeah, I mean, if you're if you're going to subsidize agriculture, which I I do believe in, because we do need we do need to eat, everybody needs to eat. Focus the subsidies in the north state and get let them give them let them be better, more efficient in what they're doing. You know, it does because we can get more efficiency just by the sheer fact of transportation of water. You know, it's closer here that we get more of it.
1: (laughs) And looking at Australia as a prime example and what they did with their infrastructure, you know, and yeah, that was more urban.
2: There was more urban use. There was not a tremendous ag influence there. But let's let's look at Delta farmers. So, And going back to Restore the Delta, we have a broad coalition Mm -hmm. that transcends political party. This is about regions, the Delta region, the North State region. And look, there's nothing wrong with, with the Central Valley. There's nothing wrong with Western San Joaquin Valley or L.A. Basin or San Diego. But we need to understand the differences between these areas and we can't turn all of California into the Midwest where we grow lots of crops in the summer and have endless amounts of water to use in the summer. It's not the Midwest. So what does that mean? It means let's focus on the areas that have the water source, Northern California and the Delta. There's plenty of farms in the Delta that have the water right there. So who would win from the tunnels? There would be uh, Western San Joaquin Valley and if we go through the water rights that are given out in California, Mm -hmm. the first water rights were pre 1850 and those were given out, you know, hundreds of years ago. And then the last water rights were given out to Western San Joaquin Valley. And that was in the mid 20th century. And their original contracts that they signed said, when we have these wet years and we have quote unquote extra water, then you and Western San Joaquin Valley will get some. Mm -hmm. And they used to grow cantaloupe, zucchini, um, all kinds of summer fruits and vegetable crops, row crops. Mm -hmm. And they would grow them some years, and then in a year like this year, they wouldn't grow anything because there would be no water for them. There were some shenanigans pulled over the years, specifically the Monterey Amendments in the mid-90s, where Metropolitan Water of LA and Kern Valley Water Agency manipulated um, some... Rules and regulations, and we're able to secure a more uh, steady water supply. And then from the mid 90s up until now, there was a massive nut boom. And right. well, on a year to year basis, nut tree does take less water than a row crop, but it needs the same amount of water every year, where you could follow your field for row crops as long as you needed to. So this is the level of detail that we want to share with you guys, but some some fishermen say like, oh, I'm overwhelmed. I don't know what to do. I want to catch fish. I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to get bogged down in too many politics and things like that." And what I say, I said, "Good. You know, you're you're not alone. Here are some things that you as a fisherman can do. And it starts out very simply. Restorethedelta.org is our website. Please sign up as a member to get our uh, updates. Um, You can get them through Facebook, you can get them through Twitter, you can get them via email. And our staff at Restore the Delta is small, and they're highly, highly dedicated, highly, highly educated, and they do make some money, but they're surviving mostly on passion, and these are some of the most special people in the world. And so the money that you donate to restore the Delta goes to pay these people to do the work that they do. What is the work that they do, you may ask? <laughs> They'll read 10,000-page documents to find the three paragraphs that don't line up and are the fodder for a lawsuit. There are over 50 lawsuits going up against the state government, DWR, among other agencies, fighting against the tunnels. Mm-hmm. And we're a 501—we don't, We don't do any lobbying. We're a 501c3, and we work in public education and outreach. And then sometimes there will be action items. We need people to show up in Sacramento and testify on certain days. This comes at a massive cost for people. You know, everyone has a job. Everyone has bills to pay. Most, a lot of people have families. And it's difficult to take Tuesday from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. to sit around Sacramento till you can testify for your three minutes. It comes at a massive cost. But if if you can do that once or twice a year or more, that would be great. Uh, I donate money, I donate fifty dollars a month to restore the Delta just to keep it going. And we're not asking for a lot. We're not trying to we're not trying to gouge anybody. You know, ten dollars a month, twenty dollars a month, fifty dollars a month. These steady donations help keep us going. And we've got We're now expanding our membership well into the L.A. Basin, well into San Diego, Central Valley, Northern California. We're one of the only organizations that has credibility around water because there's so much misinformation out there. And, you know, nobody wants to feel like they don't trust the state. Right. Mm -hmm. I love California. It's a wonderful state. I grew up here. I live here now. I love California, but I am disappointed in some of the priorities of the state government and i feel like the monetary cost of the delta tunnels is too high the environmental cost is too high and more than anything the opportunity cost is too high every minute that we spend right talking about the tunnels fighting the tunnels is a minute and a dollar that we can't spend doing things that make sense that are in inexpensive and make sense for the people, mm-hmm. yeah. a
3: la what Australia did. Yeah. And can you talk a bit about the alternatives that the other you know, things that we could be doing that were currently just on the table?
2: Yeah. So, you know, let's, we need to take a hard look at Western San Joaquin Valley. Much of this Western San Joaquin Valley that was farmed in the 50s, 60s, 70s is now so salted up. Because, again, this is salty soil. So it, it only will be good for a number of decades, and then it's just completely, completely ruined. So much of it's been retired just because it's too salty. We need to take a second look. Let's go, what's too salty right now? What's going to be too salty in three years, five years, 10 years, 20 years? Let's just, let's just retire it now. So let's retire a lot of that toxic farmland. And, yes, we may have to pull up some pomegranate trees and some almonds and some pistachios. That's okay. Like, no one's going to starve. No Americans are going to die. So, understand that. Let's mitigate the demand for Delta water in the most wasteful area there. We need to take a hard look at fracking. The people in the state of California need to look at Western States Petroleum Association, their involvement with the state government, and a lot of what's going on there and, and really think do we, need to, do we want and need to be an oil producing state? Do we need to be using our fresh water for fracking? Uh, also we need to look at the Delta. There's, you know, 2 million people live in the Delta between Sacramento and Stockton and all the cities in between. There's all kinds of infrastructure, gas pipelines, power lines, railroads. There's all kinds of infrastructure there. And Delta levies, while they're used, like we talked about before, as a tool, oh, if we have an earthquake, all the Delta Mm -hmm. levies are going to fail. That's nonsense. Okay. Fixing Delta levies is an absolute cheap date. So, you know, if, if we look at the Delta tunnels, it's going to be supposedly $70 billion. I mean, if we look, and the case studies that the state government uses when they come in and pitch this thing are the Bay Bridge, the Big Dig in Seattle, and some other infrastructure projects that have been like 700 to 10,000 percent over budget mm-hmm. took 3 times as long 5 uh, times as I long as I don't think
3: there's ever been a public works project that's hit budget ever
2: No and l- absolutely not and let's think about the delta right you've got delta mud so we're going to put these giant tunnels through the delta mud across all these rivers and creeks and le- and levees and things and then if it really if we're really concerned about earthquakes why are we putting two tunnels through this area that supposedly is susceptible to earthquakes if we're worried about delta levees, wouldn't those tunnels be affected by an earthquake too? So that's nonsense. So look at toxic, retire toxic farmland. Restore the delta levees. That's the simplest and easiest thing to do.
3: Yeah, I want to, um, on the retiring the toxic farmland, It's I mean, it sounds good conceptually. Academically, it sounds good. But if I'm a farmer on that land and you're telling me that they're going to tear up, you know, trees and row crops and all that stuff, um, Is there a plan to kind of like mitigate the the labor that would be displaced? You know, the actual, there's, I understand a lot, there's a lot of corporate ownership down there, but there's people that actually have their livelihood at, at those farms. What do you tell them?
2: Yeah, very good question. So we, f- first thing we do is back up and, and take a hard look at Western San Joaquin Valley and who's farming down there. This is not mom and pop kettle. You know, this is not in our mind's eye when we think of a couple, a family, maybe 5, 10, 15 people that work together to work this land, and it has a steady supply of water and all this fertile ground. This is toxic ground, and we have massive corporations. Chevron Corporation, Stuart Resnick's wonderful company, Union Pacific Railroad, amongst others, who own hundreds of thousands of acres with subsidized water. When those corporate agribusiness interests are threatened mostly by threatening their water supply, saying, look, we can't pump any more water to you guys because all the fish will die and we're going to have reverberating consequences in Northern California. Their first line of defense is to put up their farm workers. Now, these are mostly migrant farm workers from Mexico, and these people do the hardest work in the world. They live in pretty tough conditions, really tough conditions, and frankly, they don't even have any water to drink, if you wanted to watch a movie about this, it's called Water Heist mm-hmm. and they talk about the lack of drinking water in that area. But again, these corporate agribusinesses come out and say, "Oh, you can't threaten us because all of all of our workers are going to be challenged and put out of a job." Okay, let's back up a little bit. Few people have treated these few entities have treated these people worse than the corporate agribusinesses that employ them. So for them to put their workers out as a shield between smart water policy and their massive profits is disingenuous at best and criminal at worst.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Is that like the Democrats and the Dreamers? What? <laughs> these are most. These are mostly
2: <laughs> migrant farm workers, and they they come back and forth from Mexico. And our economy, much of our economy, has been built on that labor at that price, and. Would they lose some jobs? Absolutely. Do we have bigger issues to think about? Yes.
3: Yeah,
2: yeah but there, there's there's all kinds of shenanigans, backroom deals, yeah. and pumping groundwater aquifers. I mean, we've got 20 feet of subsidence. That's where the ground sinks when you pull out too much water. They're now drilling 2,000 feet underground pulling out all this water. So it's it's eventually going to go off a cliff. So to tell somebody, look, you're gonna go off a cliff in eight years, ten years, twenty years, we're gonna help you're not gonna go off the cliff. We're gonna help you ease ease your way down with a bunch of money. And if you want to continue your farming ways, we can figure out some way to do it. Yeah. Currently, the state priorities are placed in the wrong areas. We're still we're still operating on bad assumptions. First one being a- unlimited amount of water. Yeah. And so we're now like trying to scramble to prove that we have an unlimited amount of water when everybody that, that pays attention knows that we don't. And it's difficult. The state government will never do anything unless they are forced to do it. And the people have a voice. And if fishermen, outdoorsmen can all speak with a unified voice and apply pressure in the right areas to give some of these politicians the guts and the stones to stand up in front of everybody else and say, no, we're not doing—the emperor has no clothes. You know, We've got a state government in Sacramento that for decades have been talking about, oh, I love the emperor's no clothes. I think they look great, and we need to get him some new ones. And what about this? We're going to spend all this money on these new clothes for the emperor where he's standing there buck naked. You know, We're so far past the inflection point. I, I live in Silicon Valley. And Santa Clara Valley is home to over 2 million people, 60% of the water supply is from local supply, and they get about 15 inches of rain per year, um, and 40% comes from the Delta. With concerted effort, a la Australia, it would be very simple for the region to survive 100% on local water mm-hmm. supply.
1: So is that taking roofs, making a metal, storing your own gray water? I mean,
2: yeah, it's just it's just being smarter about things, you know. Why, why
1: haven't we done something like that? I mean, you go to New Zealand, every single house metal roof because it's not in our
2: backyard single- yet. <laughs>
3: That's why I mean, people don't do stuff unless it's right yeah. on their porch, you know. They they don't act unless it's right in their backyard.
2: Yeah, necessity is the mother of invention, yeah. and no yeah. one's felt the pinch yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, here's where I was going with um, Santa Clara Valley. So let's go back a couple of years in that really dry year. Um, I think it was 14, 15. You know, it, it was really, you know, we made it through, but there wasn't a lot of, of water that year. There wasn't a lot of local water. Well, actually, let me back up a little bit. In calendar year 2014, San Jose got 98% of their normal allocation, but 50% of it fell in one month. What does that mean? It means greater investment in regional self-sufficiency, understanding that we're going to get a lot of local supply in the winter and spring, then we can capture that and utilize it as needed. Um, And then, you know, all of 15 was really, really dry. 15, 16, we had a little bit more water, but the people in Santa Clara Valley complained of a smell and a taste of the smells funny, tastes funny, and there was an algae bloom in the Delta. And it was not a toxic algae bloom, but it was an algae bloom. It impacted the smell and the taste of the water. So Santa Clara Valley said no more delta water starting in like May or June. And they drained all the local reservoirs down to like puddles. Yeah. Well, luckily an atmospheric river came through in (laughs) sixteen and seventeen and filled everything back up. Say we had another dry year,
1: Mm -hmm.
2: we could have two million people with virtually no water. The way they're going right now, we're gonna have to hit one of these calamities before we have the public will, right, to do the right thing. What we're trying to do is rattle the cage and let people know that we're, you know, we're, we're teetering on the edge here, and. You know, the canaries in the coal mine are the delta smelt, the longfin smelt, steelhead, salmon. These fish have endangered species protections, which people are trying to chip away at this thing all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, Devin Nunes is from western San Joaquin Valley, and he wants nothing more than to, to, than to eviscerate the Endangered Species Act and then the protections for steelhead and salmon and smelt. Those are critically important to keep. Because they're the only thing that keeps water flowing all the way through the system. Mm -hmm.
3: Michael, thanks very much for coming down from the front, or I should say up from the bay to to, uh, spend some time with us here at the uh, Fish Bio office. Uh, I learned a ton. uh, For everyone listening, if you guys could do us a favor and give us a rating on iTunes and uh, Google Play Store, that'd be rad. Uh, Appreciate it. We'll talk to you next week. Late. Thank you. Hey, everybody, thanks for listening to that episode. We had actually forgotten to um, wrap that one up, so it ended abruptly there. So here's some stuff you guys can do uh, to support Restore the Delta. First of all, go to RestoreTheDelta.org, click on Menu, and then click on Take Action. You'll find multiple opportunities to stay informed, and you, and you can get involved at your own pace simplest and easiest steps would be to sign up for the email list and follow the Restore the Delta on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, Tax-deductible donations are always accepted. If you'd like to host a fundraiser, volunteer, or propose a speaking engagement, you can get a hold of them there. Just contact Synthony at restorethedelta.org. They would love to get your help. Again, thanks for listening. Take it easy.
0: This podcast would not be possible without support from our sponsors, FishBio and Amp.Build. FishBio is a consulting firm that offers a fresh approach to fishery science. They specialize in fish research, monitoring and conservation with innovative uses of technology and communication. From their offices in Chico, Oakdale, and Santa Cruz, California, to Vien Chen, Laos, FishBio is committed to solving natural resource challenges locally and globally. Learn more at www.fishbio.com and Amp.Build. Amp is a software design and engineering shop located in Chico, California. Amp creates beautiful apps for mobile and desktop devices, wearables, and the Internet of Things. Amp develops native, web, and hybrid apps on a variety of platforms. Chad, who co-hosts this podcast, is the agency's founder. Learn more at www.amp.Build.